0: Hello, my name is Edith Bowman and welcome to Soundtracking, my weekly podcast where I get to indulge in a conversation about film and music. It is my absolute passion and I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to join me on this episode, whether it's your first or whether you are a regular visitor. It is wonderful to have you part of the team. Now with this week's episode, I am very pleased That I'm able to say thank you to David Byrne, Chris France, Tina Weymouth, and Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you might remember that I mentioned I spoke to them a while back, but unfortunately, the interview wasn't recorded due to a technical malfunction. That's all I'm going to say on the matter. So you can imagine how thrilled I was and hugely grateful to them to join me for a second time to discuss the re-release of Jonathan Demme's classic 1984 concert film Stop Making Sense, which you'll be able to see in selected cinemas as of the 1st of November. Considered by many critics to be one of, if not the greatest example of the genre, it was shot over four nights in Hollywood in 1983 and is so much more than a simple documentary of their live show. The experiences I've had which you'll hear me talk about in the interview with them has been uh, euphoric is probably the best way to describe it. But before we hear from David, Chris, Tina and Jerry, we thought we'd give you a little flavour of Psycho Killer.
1: Sleep, beds on fire Don't touch me, I'm a real life Psycho killer, kiss you sick, pop
0: Hi, Tina. Hi, Chris. Hi, David. Hi, Hello. Jerry.
2: Hi.
0: Hi. 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 This is actually the second time of us doing this. So I really appreciate your time uh, to get to do this, to talk about this film. And I guess I want to say thanks as well, because to get the opportunity to be what is, could be as close to being in that room is what it felt like being in the cinema with a collection of people watching this film. It was just so transportative, emotional. It was phenomenal. So thank you.
2: Oh, good. I'm glad you saw it with, a, with an audience and not just a private screening.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I kind of more exhausted with and euphoric than I've ever been at a live show for so long. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> How's it been for you guys? You know, in terms of the response that you've had to this film from people, you know, and, and Taking it out there and, and seeing those faces in that crowd and the response to this thing that you created—we're
2: just so happy. It was kind of what you what you mentioned was I hadn't seen the film with an audience in quite a while, and seeing that again made me realize that there is something really special about not just this film, but going to see a film in a movie theater in a, in a cinema and. Having that kind of collective experience where the audience all laughs at the same time and this day they all dance at the same time. You don't get that when you're just isolated at home, watching it on your laptop or your TV. It's a really different experience.
0: It's that communal experience and also the energy you feed off people and whether it's an audible thing or just the energy when you walk in a room, it's so great. But the film kind of really has that journey as well, you know, and I love that how the, the, the show is is quite filmic in itself in terms of the production of it, you know, the way that it starts off. One man tell, starting to tell this story. And then as we go through this, it's got this kind of wonderful narrative to it. Was that, you know, when you were planning the show before the film, because this was, the film was obviously, this was your live show anyway. Was that the kind of idea that you wanted to tell a story through this live show? <laughs> it's going
2: to, It's going to sound... Maybe as many tenuous are made up, but I think we started thinking about the structure of how the show could be put together, and then as we started doing that and rehearsing and started playing it all o- in front of audiences, then it revealed itself as what it was about. I've had this experience before with with other things where you you kind of work by instinct and mm-hmm. put something together, and then when you actually put it in front of people, then you realize that's what this is about <laughs> this, this is a, not just about the kind of physical structure of how we put this together it's about this journey that the character and the audience go on together from being kind of isolated and mm-hmm. bit angsty and all that and then being surrender and release and transcendence and all that uh, and the audience is is aware of Subliminally, let's say they're aware of that story and they participate in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You almost feel like freed by the end of it. You feel like you've kind of you've lost everything. You're kind of like, yeah, let it all go. I'm kind of you know the inhibitions are gone by the end of it. It's great. I was just gonna say, you made me realize, yeah, this is the end of the pandemic, and people
3: are together again, and this is the perfect sort of <laughs> release from from that lockdown that we all needed and the loneliness that many people experienced in lockdown so yeah this is the antidote
4: (laughs) this isn't as philosophical as that but the idea of the show starting smaller and becoming the entire big band the two the two tours that we had done earlier we started Mm -hmm. just the four piece and then built so the idea of going from smaller to bigger had been there from the very beginning, but it just was taken uh, to its sort of logical extension. And the other thing is that the first four Talking Heads records were, we made deliberate decisions about how to record the records to force us to be in slightly different environments, Mm
0: -hmm. knowing
4: that we would get not predicted results from it, but something different. For instance, Fear of Music, we decided that you never feel quite as comfortable when you go in a recording studio as you do with where you rehearse. So we recorded it in our rehearsal loft, which was Christentina's loft in Long Island City. And we had to wait for alternate Sundays where there was less traffic noise to be able to record them.
3: Only did we did two more songs. songs about
4: buildings and food. We were amongst the first uh non-Jamaicans to go in and record at, at Compass Point Studio, which was, well, we're going to put ourselves in a really different place at... And the engineers, and everybody is influenced by a different kind of music than sort of what's going on in New York. So we, we did different things, you, you might say, to set the stage for us to be inspired in ways that, that we were reacting to our environment. And so this is no different. What David was saying is we kind of set the structure up and said these generalized things, but things developed as the tour went on.
0: I was reading about the kind of journey to actually get into the point to 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 do this film to re-release it, to make it available for, you know, for your fans, but for new fans and new generations. And there was a bit of a journey in terms of being able to find the, you know, the masters and things like that. It's kind of, you know, it's it's, uh, it's it's almost a film in itself.
4: We were very lucky because certain things took a really long time to find. You think that everything's really organized. And then I know that the the print was found at a warehouse, I believe, in Kansas that was owned by MGM and MGM never had anything to do with the film. And it was really sort of just fortuitous that James Bukowski made a call to someone who said like, well, I'm too busy. And then he goes, is this what you're looking for? Film has lots of times where you're making copies of the audio, which is why we did it in digital. So I had started very early with E.T. Thorngrin looking for things, especially in the Rhino vault, because we had of course made an album as well. And then, things would drop out of sync, you know, it would be perfectly fine for two minutes and 30 seconds. And then something, this must not be the right thing. So we had a long time, but as it worked out, it was really a rush at the end because there were various little things. And even to the end is that we, when we were mixing at the sound stage doing the final mix, there's a a moment where Alex runs up to the microphone and does something like, or something, some like nonsense words and it's not on the take that we have and so we had to go look through all of the other takes from other nights because the music and that picture were not matched oh. and we found what he was saying and then put it in there wow and and, and gary was gary gets what i have to say because he makes films all the time it's like david's doing this on screen bring his guitar up tina's doing this make sure that's there and i you know i remember going Chris is playing the hi-hat. He's right behind David's head. I can't hear the hi-hat enough. we got to make that louder. So we had the luxury this time, and I don't think we did this in the beginning, of like going, it's all really, really, really balanced, but let's respond more to the shots. So I think one of the things about this mix is it really is like going with the shot is going here and you hear it. And also having the multi-channel audio means that there's maybe a speaker where you want to place it you can bring it up in that speaker, but everything else is kind of staying the same. So the power of the band is not being diminished because you decided to want to boost something else. It's just it kind of comes in on top and then goes back into the whole mix. So that was really fun.
0: Also, that's the other thing about seeing it in a, a cinema is the kind of sound in there and you're the immersive nature. But you've done such an incredible job with the sound of it. It really is absolutely fantastic. It's brilliant. Ha! You've you've used, you know, new technology, but you've not lost the essence of what you sounded like as a band back there. The heart of that is still there.
4: There were decisions that were made. For instance, because it was shot over different nights, but we we chose what we considered the best performances. There are places where there's, let's say, sloppy sync. And with modern, you know, putting it in a computer, that could have been fixed. And there was a debate, should we do this? And, and then the decision was. Let's not mess with this too much. I mean, let's take advantage of the of what kind of projector is going to be used, and that you have a multi channel theater. But let's not let's keep the flaws that are that were implicit to what you could do in 1984. So it'll seem not like totally worked over, but real.
0: Yeah, Chris. In terms of you know going back to when when the the decision was made originally to to film the show with Jonathan Demi, how did that come about did he come to you and approach you guys to go you know i want to film the show what was the what was the original kind of background to that
5: he did he did come to us i i think david has a little story about the producer gary Getzman's brother or something uh, uh something to do with a swimming pool and jonathan <laughs> jonathan saying i want to I hear know. that story What I remember is Jonathan coming backstage and saying, I'd like to make a movie of this show. It's a great show. And I think it'll make a great movie. We had recently seen his movie, Melvin and Howard, and we thought that was really good. And, you know, Jonathan was like a new, new kind of director at that time. He he hadn't done the silence of the lambs yet Mm -hmm. or, or stopped making sense yet. But, we just had a good feeling. I think we all responded well to his enthusiasm. It's It seemed like a, a very natural kind of relationship that we, we began with. And, and you know, Jonathan was a not only super talented as a director, but he was a good person. I, for one, am very happy to have known him.
0: What's the swimming pool story then, David? Do you want to share that?
5: <laughs> uh, I remember, remember
2: swimming pool, but I remember... There were things I was told recently that I, that I don't, didn't remember. Mm. Uh, what I was told was that Derek is the producer, his brother uh, was trying to book us to do a concert in one of the... Cal, near,
4: Cal State Northridge.
2: Yeah, a local university outside of Los Angeles. And we ended up not doing that. But somehow he talked to his brother, who was very close friends with Jonathan Demi. And so one thing led to another and it was like they went to see the show and Jonathan, I guess, felt like, oh, this show should be filmed. <laughs> yeah, so one thing led to another and we we did a lot of shows after that while we were raising the money. And so that Jonathan and uh, Sandy McLeod could get to know, get familiarized themselves with the show. We kind of toured around California and Arizona and all those areas so that they, they could kind of, Watch the show and learn how it works. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the movie Licorice Pizza. Yes.
0: yes. Paul Thomas Anderson.
2: The Gary in that movie is the Gary producer who produced this movie. No. He had a waterbed company as a kid.
4: Yep. He had a waterbed company. <laughs> it's not in Licorice Pizza, but the end of the waterbed company, water company was he decided to save money. So he bought a railroad card of lumber. Because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to pay the lumber yard the extra amount of money. And when oh it was all warped. Oh no. And he couldn't use it. And he didn't have the money to basically write it off or find somebody someone to sell it to to go back to the way he was doing it. So the waterbed company was uh oh, briefly yeah. ended. And he was a child actor. And I think that's actually how he Jonathan and He Matt was actually his, it be, with oh. him doing
0: that. That's amazing. Uh, I didn't know, no yeah. idea that was, yeah. Oh, my God, that's great. I So great. I was lucky enough to speak to Paul about the film for the, the podcast, and he was played so brilliantly as well by Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. I mean, what a fantastic performance in that film, just extraordinary.
4: The scene of backing the truck down the hill is, is, <laughs> yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Tina, when you think back of the filming, you know, kind of taking that point, Jonathan's watched your show a number of times. He's getting ready to to capture it, to to film over a few nights. And Jordan Cronin with is the, you know, the DOP. And what's lovely is I believe his son as well worked on the remaster and lovely full circle of things. What was the reality of filming like, Tina? You know, in terms of there's, what, six cameras around, but you never feel like they're intrusive when you're watching the film. But for you guys on stage, what was that like? I think we adapted
3: very quickly. I mean, we had such a good team. Our team, the band, our road crew, all the lighting crew, all the people, and then the film crew. And everybody worked really, really well together. I mean, there was a few kinks to iron out. And that's why we played four days, but we shot three. And there were some little snafus where Jonathan almost didn't make it back in time to shoot one of the nights and i mean things like that but it was very easy in my my memory it was very easy all we had to do was just do our show and enjoy it and really give the fans what they came to see
4: the fact that we had members of our crew walking around on stage holding a light to light us in a certain way So the idea that there was a cameraman that would be in a similar location, we were used to someone, you might say, encroaching on our space because that was part of the show. Yeah. So it wasn't shocking to suddenly have someone else on stage near you.
0: You talk about having fun, and that's another thing that just kind of seeps out. Not to disrespect the the other three of you, but Tina, I could just purely have watched your your camera for the whole night because there's just something beautifully infectious about watching how much you – are enjoying where you are and what you're doing. It's just beautiful to watch. So I'm so grateful I get the chance to see it again. In and, the
2: future, yes, we'll do the interactive version. Yeah, where we can choose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, well. I understand that one of
4: Jonathan's favorite shots, and, it, and I really like it, is that when we found a job and it's from the side and it's like, Tina, David, and I are in a line, and we're sort of dancing back and forth, not planned in any way, but there's a sort of sort of simpatico movement without being designed and you like each yes. person's sort of own movement style and things like that, but you yes. get a real sense of the personality of sort of the, of us there
3: and and it's just the four of us and that interplay where we're just yeah. going in and out and it's just it's just a natural movement a kind of mm-hmm. wave with the music obviously you know to us the music was always the star of the show and everything was designed David's what David did what Jerry did what each member did was designed to to just enhance the show because we all felt like we're we're a part of something bigger mm-hmm. than
0: our Yeah, the film really celebrates the musicianship. It really does as well. That's another thing that really that it really does as well. Kind of, you know, because again, that journey of starting small and going big. And oh, my God, Edna and Lynn as well. Just oh, the most the characters that. Oh,
3: yeah. I love I love the shots with the now that the color has been restored when they're singing where you're all singing what a day that was. Just so beautiful. I mean their mouths are all open and the way the light is coming in. And you can see their blue eyeshadow. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I never noticed that on the VHS, you know. Yeah, I Remember it. It was so startlingly beautiful
2: to That's see a very good working. dental work as
1: well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well I'm up so nice, and I'm doing my best. Over
0: I think Tina, you could quite easily release a line of clothing as well from your outfits because they're just so. I mean, I know people talk a lot about the suit, David, but Tina absolutely smashing it when it comes to fashion in this uh, <laughs> this film as well.
3: Oh, thank you. That's so important. Women have to are always thinking about the pleasure of other women looking at fashion. It's so important. Absolutely, thank you.
0: I would buy every item that was available if I could. What what is the history though with the suit? I've always I've always I've, I'm sorry if it's a question you get asked so much, David, but but you know where did that whole kind of idea come from? Because it's you know it's this it's part of this journey. It's part of the story of this film, really. And our, our previous tour had finished in Japan, and
2: I was given the chance to be there for a little bit. I stayed mm-hmm. on for a bit and went to see a fair amount of traditional theatre. Kabuki and No and Bunraku, and particularly in the No theater, which is, I have to say, rather slow-moving. Even the Japanese audiences fall asleep in the, in the stalls. <laughs> <laughs> but they, but they, have these, they often wear these costumes with big, straight-up shoulders, and then they, they form like a big rectangle that's not fat, but wide, and they, they're usually front-facing. And I thought, well, that's an interesting shape. That's an interesting costume. And I was having lunch with a a designer, a fashion designer in Japan. We're having dinner. And I said, I'm wondering what to wear on the next tour. We're going to do another one after this. I wonder what could be. And this person said in a kind of, I don't know, sarcastic way. Oh, David, you know, everything is bigger on stage in the theater. And, of course, he was referring to gestures and the voice and all that. But I was thinking about what to wear. So I just drew on a napkin a suit that had the shape of one of those no costumes, but was, you know, a big a Western suit. And that was it. Then it was just the, the puzzle of how in the world to realize this thing.
0: <laughs> and how to move about, I imagine, as well. And being able to, <laughs> you know... For it to show your movements. I hope there's one in a museum. I don't know how many you made in the end, but I hope there's like one preserved in a museum. Uh
2: there might be. This one the one the one in the film was in the museum for a while. And then I think we took it out. Well, we took it out and used it for a an ad, a kind of right. advanced ad that that uh A twenty four did of me yeah. back from the dry cleaners.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I think it needs to be in the museum, but with like kind of animatronics in it, so it's moving, so it's mm. not just stationary. So it's in the museum and it's kind of constantly moving, like perpetual motion. That would be awesome. Yeah. You can have that. Um, I was I was laughing as well reading that. Um, it, it you know might be wrong, but but Bernardo Bertolucci saw the film with you, David, and kind of his response was was brilliant. Where I believe he said something about you know he wished that people people danced like that his films. Is that right?
2: Yes. <laughs> Which is, well, yeah, his films are not the sort of films you, you <laughs> to. They're, some of them are really beautiful. There,
5: there was uh, some dancing at Last Tango in
0: Paris. In Paris. <laughs> 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 but that's the kind of, you know, there are very few, you know, we're, we're at a concert. We're, this is a live show that's been filmed, and I love the, the kind of the the containment that, that Jonathan chose in terms of how to film that, where the audience is only revealed at a certain point. You know, it's kind of a really clever kind of choice of of how that happens because that it really adds to the to the emotion of the film whilst you're watching it as well. But then also when you're in the audience, you're kind of like, shall I? Can I? Can I get up? You know, you kind of you're desperate to get up and dance. And then as soon as you see that audience, it's kind of like everything is allowed to 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 mm. kind of let go. And it's almost kind of weird that it blurs that line between reality and what you're watching in a way, which is so just so fantastic
4: we've seen pictures from this re-release where people have literally stormed the stage (laughs) and are dancing i know it just happened at the castro theater in san francisco but even in the initial imax at, at grumman's chinese theater in la and then you get these shots where you see real people dancing and then behind them you see heads bobbing into the frame of the of the of on the movie and so it it's a it's a three dimensional reality that goes in, into the film it's it's pretty fabulous
0: for you watching it for that first time you know when you you know I imagine you hadn't seen it for for a number of years but when you saw it for the first time was it it was it emotional was it was it kind of surprising was it you know what what did, what was the, the feeling when you saw it for the first time after that
5: for me it was emotional yes I I mean it mostly I just thought god Tina's such a babe
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you
5: know, let's tell it like it is
0: exactly I said this last time and I'd uh, I'm sorry to repeat myself but I think it needs to be said and that Tina I think that for me as well being I just find you such an inspiration you know up there and through the years just in terms of of what you've done and it's so wonderful to celebrate that with the the re-release of this film as well so I I just want to say uh, on behalf of all of us kind of girls who looked up to you and you know sort of projected ourselves on watching you thank you so much for what you you've done and did for us really
3: well thank you and thank thank you to these gentlemen you know for having me you know on stage with them because I didn't think that I was cut out for a rock band at all but I really loved the music so much that I would do anything, you know, just to mm-hmm. just to be playing together with such a great, great group of people. Have you
2: ever heard from other women musicians? That-
3: yeah. I had a, an interview a long 90 minutes with Esty Haim. And your she, sister was at licorice pizza. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they are amazing, you know, and they, they've been doing it since they were children because their father is a drummer. And so all three girls play drums, and their mother is a guitarist. So they all have had their hand at, pl- at playing guitar. And Esty's so happy, she's very possessive about, well, but I have the bass, you know? <laughs> and she said that her father, because she was um, a very young girl, maybe eight years old, and she'd been playing guitar for a while. Mm. And up came her younger sister Danielle and Danielle was already surpassing her when she was only 5 years old and so Estee was so upset and her father said no 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 wait here wait here and he sat her down in front of an it was a VHS tape and said now watch this and she realized oh I could be very happy playing bass guitar <laughs> that it is fun And it is challenging. She did recognize that, that it wasn't going to make it easier. It was going to be a whole other discipline from playing guitar, but um, six string guitar. But she realized that there was something very powerful when a woman can get up there and play to her heart's content. She actually feels her most strong when she's Mm. on stage with her bass guitar. And, uh, I'm very happy to be a part of her life that way, that little way. But I'm so proud. I mean, we're all so proud because all of these young musicians coming up, we feel like they're all our children, you know, (laughs) they learned, they picked up, they're doing what we did. And some of them are doing it so very well.
0: Yeah. And you're still inspired in new generations of of music fans and and musicians as well. So that's another thing that this film does um thank you so much for your time today it's just great to celebrate the film and you and your music and thank you for for doing this again david jerry chris and tina thanks so much
1: You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. You may find yourself in another part of the world. You may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. You may ask yourself, well... You may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house You may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife And the days of
0: From the album Stop Making Sense Once in a Lifetime, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Talking Heads. Oh, I can't believe I get to say those words. It actually happened for a second time. My huge thanks to David, Christina, and Jerry for joining me to re record that chat. Stop Making Sense is in selected cinemas from the 1st of November. If you are new to us, please head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes. And please do follow us on socials. We're at Soundtracking UK as we've ramped up our efforts and are now trying to share loads of extra content with you. Also our YouTube channel, uh, which we'd be very grateful if you could subscribe to as well. We've just stuck an exclusive um, Loki season two episode up there so we're not putting that out as a podcast episode it's it's a YouTube exclusive so if you want to hear from one of the directors and producers about the second series of Loki head over to our YouTube channel next up we've got a bonus episode for you uh, later in the week as Cecile Tournesac and Eddie Hamilton join us once again on the podcast this time we've got a Top Gun special you do not want to miss this it is fascinating I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.